Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Franklin D. Gilliam Jr., the Chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Franklin, welcome to Trending in Education. Hey, Mike. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and it's been a pretty hectic <laughs> time to be uh, responsible for a major university in North Carolina with an interesting, interesting mission, and I think there's plenty for us to discuss today. One of the ways we like to kick off the show typically is to, to get the origin story of our guests. What exactly got you to where you are now in your career? And since in some ways you really made it to, to the heights, I'm excited to hear from you, you know, how you actually got there and any lessons learned along the way. Well, you know, this is uh, one of those questions where you don't know exactly where to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raised in Canada until I was 11, a Midwesterner after that. Went to high school in suburban Minneapolis. George Floyd thing was particularly salient to me. Yeah. I went to college in the Midwest on a football scholarship. Played there for four years and decided I got my ribs broken when we were playing Colorado that taking the GREs was probably a better uh, life course. And so... And so I went directly to graduate school and had always been a political science major and started out on a career as an academic. My first academic job was on the faculty as an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Mm-hmm. And then I was recruited by UCLA and stayed there for 29 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Ended up as the dean of the Luscombe School for Public Policy. Mm-hmm. And from there, came to North Carolina. Interestingly enough, I had never been in the state of North Carolina until I interviewed. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing for presidencies at the time. Mm-hmm. And an old high school friend who's an academic, actually, we grew up in the same neighborhood and went to the same high school, uh, sort of Facebooked me out of the blue and said, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. I'm I'm coming to Los Angeles on an NIH panel. Uh, Want to get a cup of coffee? I said, sure. I haven't seen her in many, many years. And, yeah. And we're sitting around chatting, and she says, uh, I'm telling her what I'm doing. I'm interviewing for these jobs. She says, oh, my school has, is just looking for a new chancellor. Mm. And I had only remembered her being at the University of Tennessee. And then she mm-hmm. said, what? She says, no, I'm in Greensboro, and I, I enjoyed it. I left, I left uh, Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And I'll put your name for it. And I said, sure, sure. That's great. Right. right, never, right. Thought of, never thought about it again until I get a call from the search firm. Yeah. You've been nominated for chancellor of, of UNC Greensboro. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay, uh, I guess. And so they invited me to come out. I came out all under cloak and dagger to avoid, I guess, the open meeting stuff. And they, yeah, yeah. Got us in tents, having to drive into a tent and escort us with umbrellas. And people huh. see us. Uh, yeah, yeah. I felt like I was interviewing for the NSA or the CIA <laughs> or something. Uh, and then they invited me back, and I said, well, I, I've been flying all over country interviewing for these jobs. And I mm-hmm. said, oh, gosh, go all the way back to North Carolina. I just, I just can't do it from Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm just overflying. And they said, no, they really want you to come back. I said, I don't want to come back. It's too far. And they said, come on, you, you know, so they convinced me to come back. So I came back and uh, then got a call from then President Tom Ross, who said, we'd like you to be the next chancellor of UNC Greensboro, the 11th chancellor, and you've got 24 hours to decide. Wow. <laughs> and so, you know, that's how I got here. Yeah. Wow. That's a pretty, and then the 11th too. I mean, there's some storied history to the, the, the university itself. Can, can you share a little bit of that as well? It started, it's 127 years old. Mm-hmm. Started as uh, a women's college. Mm-hmm. It was that until the m- mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. It, it became co-educational. I think they did the first men in 65 or 66. Okay. Um, it had always been known as the the university where the smart girls went. Uh, and I'm led to believe that when they admitted men, the collective GPA dropped by <laughs> a half a percent or something. 
Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the distraction of having men on campus too. Well, you know, so it's a du- double bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so the, the the university's history and legacy had been that it had always provided opportunity and access to high level education mm-hmm. for, for people who who didn't have that opportunity. To remember, during the first half of the 20th century and the late parts of the I mean, 21st century and late parts of the 20th century, women were not didn't couldn't go to right uh, to to state universities. Uh, right, right. In our case, at either Chapel Hill or North Carolina State, women at best could be day students. They could come and take some classes during the day, and then they got it. Yeah. And so we were a residential mm-hmm. camp for women, and it was tip, and we. You know, we actually, as women, could come and learn STEM disciplines. They could really yeah. have opportunities that they might not have otherwise. Um, right, right. And in, in fact, if you think of the, the movie in the book of Hidden Figures, yes, it was a women's college alum who was really the person who started that division mm. because they'd been trained. And actually, when I've met a lot of the older alums, it's been interesting. They've been mathematicians and scientists and they work have worked with the intelligence agencies uh-huh. so it's been interesting maybe that explains the uh, the interview process too you know or the, yeah maybe. Uh, I, I just think that was more north carolina politics <laughs> uh, yeah yeah but uh, but that that organizational history in some ways expanded right so i think originally it was uh, predominantly white women right i mean that was the not, not predominantly exclu- exclusively yeah Thank yeah and so yeah yeah 62 uh, i think okay yeah and then 62 it opened up to a, to three or four black women <laughs> and then and then relatively soon after that it became coed yes Got it. But, uh, but those early, you know, what, what may seem, you know, retrograde, you know, looking back on it was sort of cutting edge, I, I guess, at the time in some ways. Yeah. And then, and, then, yeah, and, then, and then it does sound like there's been a, a continuation of that trend, that trajectory really since the 60s, right on through today, where now as someone who's been chancellor here for a little bit, how would, how would you characterize the mission of UNC uh, Greensboro today? It's it's the same as it's always really been, and mm-hmm. that is to become a national model for how you blend uh, access, excellence, and impact. Mm-hmm. And you know, that sounds like a sounds a bit trite or cliche, mm-hmm. uh, but the popular narrative has been that access and excellence are, are is a zero choice decision or game mm-hmm. right if you have access you somehow have to lower standards and right we think we're able to demonstrate and have been able to demonstrate uh, that you don't have to do that eliminated black white uh, outcome differences yes nearly eliminated income based gaps in educational performance yeah um, we are number one in the state for social mobility mm-hmm. and we are if not the most diverse and across all dimensions student body then one of the top two in in the north carolina system of 17 schools the bottom yeah. line then is we take the widest array of students the farthest yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah and, and, it, and, and also furthest. yeah and it's and it sounds like there's a there's a lot of intentionality to the metrics that you're looking at too. And they, they may be slightly counter to some of the metrics that other universities may measure themselves. Well, you know, the UNC system when Marcus Bones became president actually in, uh, instituted metrics. Mm. Okay. And what they call performance metrics. And you were, okay. and you worked with the system to develop, but they gave you a choice. There's nine of them or something. So, I mean, the yeah. choice, that was limited. Yeah, uh, you could say these five were going to sort of actively pursue; these four were going to sort of hold pat on. Okay, the reach and so on. So, for example, improving uh, retention and graduation graduation rates of low income students. Yeah, enrolling larger numbers of rural students. It's been one of the 
learning ex out experiences for me since mm -hmm. I've been here, mm -hmm. uh, particularly coming from Los Angeles, is that right. recognizing that a lot of our students come from small towns. Right. I, I don't know. I knew North Carolina had been big textile right. based economy and so on. So I, I don't know. I thought it naively that it was like Cleveland or Detroit or someplace, and there were these big mills in yeah. towns and every, you know, and didn't realize that in fact, every little town had a mill of some sort. Yeah. And also I didn't realize that there was, uh, the, the agricultural sector was so big here with tobacco and cotton. So sure, sure. So there are a lot of kids from a lot of small towns, many of them first in their family to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so the legislature identified low-income or rural students as, as uh, benchmarks for us to improve access generally across all 17 campuses. Right. So it's just the, uh, the, the humble brag here is that we're the only school in the system to meet ours two years in a row and to meet all nine this past year. Oh, wow. So, you know we've hit them and yeah that, so that's a real testament to our faculty and our staff mm -hmm. uh, who have uh, really brought passion to the intentions yeah and, and how, is that how you would attribute it i mean you think there's there's like buy-in within, within yeah you know, culture this is we are not what they call an r1 or research one like ucla was or wisconsin right. Right. or state so we have paid attention historically to teaching. Mm -hmm. I've been in, in fact, all my career, except till I came here, I had been in R1 flagships and yep. where research was the currency of the realm and right, right. teaching was not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to say our students come with native intelligence. They just don't come in many instances with the built-in advantages. Right the students come with. Right. And so our job is to coach them up and yeah. speak. And I think we, we've done it intentionally. We created a new division of student success. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's and a state of the art student success commons right in the heart of campus. We've mm -hmm. made it uh, part of the culture that students, when they need help, can go there. I think right. Some institutions, and you need help. You heck, can't find the professor half the time. When right, I, right. Say that, I say that from being one of those professors for many years, right, right. You know, Doctor Hill myself. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but our faculty pride themselves on being in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Now we're still doing, and in fact, increasingly being very research productive on our campus. Sure. Continue to uh, to engage in cutting-edge research, but it's not the only thing that we Right. Do. Yeah, yeah. And some of these metrics are, you know, it's, it's impressive. I guess it's good in and of itself to be pursuing them, but it, I think what's impressive and somewhat hopeful is that by being intentional about moving the needle on these metrics, you were able to do so, which would kind of indicate that other organizations and universities can follow your lead. And that's where I'd love to hear more about, you know, some of the some of the tactics that have worked. But then I also would love to maybe lean into the, the crazy year that 2020 has been. And as someone who's leading uh, you know, a major university with a diverse uh, student body and the mission that we just described, I'm sure you've had uh, many a sleepless night since maybe March of this year. And, and I'd love to hear- Mike, yeah. I did not think this interview was going to end in, in you pouring salt into the wounds. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not ending, hopefully. Hopefully it's just in the middle. You're going to hit a sore spot. I'm going to have heartburn. Uh, <laughs> the, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what we've really focused on, look, it's not that we don't know how to provide good education in this country. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, cancer, there's no cure. Right. But education, we know, and many of our children, my own, mm -hmm. yours ultimately will. Yeah, yeah. You're going to direct him to the right kind of school. You're going to learn right. 
but that's because you're going to have those choices. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have those choices. Right? Mm -hmm. So we know how to provide it. Mm -hmm. And so to some degree, we have to simulate what happens in good educational environments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of supports built around the student yep. to help them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in really affluent places, they just buy it. Right. Computers, you buy right, right. specialists to do this, that, or the other thing. Right, right. Schools that are well-funded, they provide these things. You have strong counselors, strong yep. college advising, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we try to essentially simulate that uh, or recreate that environment, but do it at an institutional level mm -hmm. so we can support our students. So, for example, we have peer mentorship program for freshman students, and mm -hmm. they're led by trained graduate students. So we get a twofer. Mm -hmm. a graduate student and a mentor, a freshman, are mm -hmm. likely to have more in common with the freshman than some, you know, 40 or 50 year old. We are scaling that up to offer it to more students. We have a, a training academy for people working, students and staff who work with our students, particularly our first and second year students. Mm -hmm. That's been both of these things have been funded externally. We have philanthropic mm -hmm. dollars to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we uh, have done a lot more in our traditional student affairs space to engage in high touch mm -hmm. uh, uh, behavior with the or practices. Excuse me, with the staff. And part mm -hmm. of it, we have to touch these students. Some of it, they just don't know to ask. They don't know what to yep. ask for. Um, I'm going to tell you, um, affluent students know what to ask for. Yeah. And they feel, <laughs> they also feel entitled to ask for it as well. Exactly you know? right. Yeah. You can't make them feel like you're, uh, they're going to a remedial center. Right, right. And that like any other thing, you're going to get better. Right. Practice. It's Right. You've got folks who've been trained to help you. Mm -hmm. And once we kind of get them to see that path, mm -hmm. to, to, to recreate some of those built-in advantages that yeah. a lot of other students come with, then, they, then they're fine. Yeah. They have the native intelligence. They're, they're, right, right. Uh, yeah, it, it, it brings me to a little bit of the uh, diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity, you know, and the idea that frequently, you know, students of color may not feel that sense of belonging or connection to their university culture. And it seems like, you know, UNC Greensboro is almost a counterexample yeah, to look, that. I, I spent my whole educational experience being in environments where there were very few black students, whether mm -hmm. it was as a, at any point in my life from right going to school in Canada, right. going to school in suburban Minneapolis in the 70s when mm -hmm. there would be one black family in each suburb. We all knew right. each other. <laughs> right, right. To going to a private university where other than those guys on the football team or the basketball or track guys, there weren't a lot mm -hmm. of black students. To graduate school where mm -hmm. we had Two of us in our PhD program teaching at Wisconsin was one of the few African-American faculty to teaching at UCLA was better. Yeah. So, well, and here's what I'm getting at, Mike. We have about 23% uh, African-American undergraduate students. Yep. So the, the, the feeling of isolation comes when you are a black student, you're the only black student in your class, and then you walk out of the class and all the students are going around and you don't see anybody who looks like you. Yeah. In our case, A, you might not be the only one in the class, but B, mm -hmm. even if you are, when you walk out of that class, you see a bunch of people who look like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it reduces that sense of isolation and therefore alienation from the university community. Yes. And I don't know, I suspect there's some threshold number. I've not done any academic, but it has to be more than probably, you know, 
15% or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I'm just guessing here to sort of think through what it would take for a kid at the school to walk out of that classroom and see on the campus other people that look like them. Right, right. Uh, and I think it's true for Latinx students. I think it's true for Asian yeah. students. So college is hard enough. Mm -hmm. But th think about it the other way, Mike. Mm -hmm. Every time you walked out of your class and onto your campus, mm -hmm. you saw a whole bunch of people that looked like you. Unless you're going to tell me you went to Howard or something, <laughs> out, uh, then I suspect that was your experience. Right. Psychological and emotional toll that takes on people. I think yes. we're now just learning. Yes. As a, as a quick, a little bit of a segue to the to the protest, the George Floyd murder. A lot of my white friends have come to me and said, and these are well-meaning, liberal, yeah. educated folks. Mm -hmm. I just, all this stuff I'm hearing, people coming forward with their stories. I, mm -hmm. I just didn't know, how could I not know? Yeah. And my friends were asking me, well, how come I didn't know this? And I've heard this over and over and over again. How, how is it like this? And because, right, two parts to this line of thinking. One, the George Floyd video was so visceral mm -hmm. and the inactivity of the other police, the intentionality of Chauvin, mm -hmm. it was, e and then all the stories they've heard about blacks being, they, you know, here's the second part of it. Yep. America's been gaslit on race since mm -hmm. 1980. There's been a gaslighting of race. Mm -hmm. So what are the elements of it? How did it, how did that narrative start? In 80, during the, the Reagan, early Reagan years, the concept of the race card was developed. Mm -hmm. So anytime anybody black said anything about race, the white response was you're playing the race card. Mm -hmm. Meaning yep. it was being uh, race was being invoked arbitrarily or right. uh, to get like an unfair advantage, I guess, yeah. is the idea, right. you know? Yeah. So, but then it got, then it, it, it go, go down a whole list of things. Mm -hmm. Why are you so sensitive? Why do you mm -hmm. talk about race all the time? How yeah. do you know it was racially motivated? The person right. just a bad, was right. in a bad mood, had a bad right. Why, why are you getting so emotional is a good one that's out there. It's so emotional. Right. Okay. So what has happened in, as, a as a response in the black community is particularly among the middle class, people just quit talking about their experiences. Yes, yes. Talk about them with each other, mm -hmm. but wouldn't talk about them with white people. Right, right. And this is to the point about the emotional and and intellectual toll it takes on people. Yeah. Even faculty and staff. And so this suppression also comes with a cost. Yeah. People right. are frustrated. If you've read Black in the Ivory or any of the, right. the accounts that every story has had, every story you have heard has happened to me at mm -hmm. one point or another. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I was stopped every year I came home from college, either at front of my parents' house, one time stopped in the driveway, mm -hmm. another time stopped at the beginning of the street. I mean, yeah, yeah. Without, I mean, and then just go down the list of every, every other microaggression you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And I asked my father, who played professional sports in the 50s, mm -hmm. I said, Jesus, how did, you, how did you possibly survive that? Yeah. He said, well, I could have fought every day. Right. Said, but, you know, I... I was trying to get ahead, and so uh, he said, but I always kept track of the transgressors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if I ever got a chance to get even, I did. Right, 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 yeah. Which is something I t I've taken to heart over the years. <laughs> but this was to say then, the students who are complaining about faculty mistreating them, mm -hmm. I mean, old, uh, my favorite, I had it happen many times when I was a young professor, I'd say something in a meeting, and a departmental meeting yeah nobody would register it three mm -hmm. minutes later a peer yep. of mine another a white young professor would say the so i would sit there the thing is this is a gaslighting i yeah. would say those 
I'm looking at him. Didn't didn't I? Didn't I? Yeah. Just, yeah. Right. And, he, and then I thought, well, God, maybe I didn't say it. Right, right. It kept happening. That's the gaslighting. Even sure. I believed I didn't say it when I said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as you know, the end game of gaslighting and in the famous movie Gaslight mm-hmm. was to drive the person insane. Right, right. I've had two friends kill themselves who are acting mm. Wow, yeah. Because it drove them insane. Wow, yeah. And, uh, but, so, but, uh, but, uh, yeah but I guess on a, on a positive note, there, it, there are opportunities to sort of combat that feeling, that perception among your student body by, you know, the tactics you're talking about, absolutely, the representation of your student body, uh, 100%. But then also, I think the, there's the old adage, you know, culture, uh, eat strategy for lunch. Yeah. You, know, you could have the most lofty aspirations around moving the needle on these things, but if you don't actually have the buy-in up and down throughout your culture, it's, you're not really going to get there. And yeah. thoughts on that? Well, I think you're dead right. I mean, it was the first job I asked I took on when I, when I came here, which mm-hmm. was I believed I had to change the culture, not just for this issue, yeah. but to really transform the university and to, to have it live to its full potential as an institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have had to buy into that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been the hardest part of the job, mm-hmm. um, that and learning Southern culture. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in the North. Uh, I've never sort of don't have any of Right, right. You got Canada and, and Los Angeles are, are not the South. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't have it in my DNA, so <laughs> I've uh, had some difficulties uh, yeah. because of my ignorance of the norms and mores. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, changing the institutional culture was job one and is still job one. Yeah, especially in light of this year, too, you know, because the other aspect is COVID, right? So um, you know, that, the, that's hard. I mean, because yeah. you don't know what <laughs> it changes from week to week. For sure. I mean, you're talking about planning under extreme conditions of extreme uncertainty. Exactly. Yeah, you have, there are lots of layers to it. You've got not only your university, but we've got five. Even in Greenville, which is a relatively small town of a thousand, has five universities or colleges in it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's not just our campus, it's the other as well. Many of the students live with students from the other campuses. For sure, yeah. Or live in proximity to them. So we've had to develop a a county-wide, city-wide collaborative to try to Mm -hmm. deal with some of this. You've got to work with the county health agency. So they're Mm -hmm. doing all the contact tracing and that's yeah we've got to deal with the university system Mm -hmm. that will make policy for all 17 campuses right Mm -hmm. uh, that's hard to find that point of view Mm -hmm. Uh, the data is that we're spiking here in north carolina yes which Mm -hmm. i don't think any of us and if you had asked me three weeks ago and we don't been pretty steady. We so our, our assumption was, you know what, this is probably in North Carolina going to be relatively flat. There'll be a few blips. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because we hadn't looked like New York or sure, or any of those places, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. curves going in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. Where you know we start um, moving students back to campus, or they're allowed. So it's interesting. Yeah, you know, the sort of the length, the gymnastics we have to go through. Yeah, we're having them. We're having to stagger the move-in dates. They're allowed to come in, drop their stuff off, but then they got to leave. Yeah, you know, so it's not the typical. Oh, you know how it is. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. Families are there because I go For to sure. and I help them move in. I chat right. up with families and do all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And they're all, we're all glommed in together and we're sweating and it's hot and yeah, yeah. North Carolina and we're carrying this stuff up. But to prevent that, <laughs> yeah. some drop their stuff off in, in staggered uh, sessions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the f- then having them come back in waves. Mm-hmm. So, but July 25th, we'll see 
the first, well, we've already seen some students move in, the RAs and the support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then August 10th will be the first wave of students who will move in. Mm-hmm. And then instruction starts August 18th. Right, which August is early, right? Like you're pulling it, you pulled it forward? We kept it, we kept it the same. Okay, got it. Some yeah. is in our system pulled it forward. Some are going back on the 10th, I think. Yeah, yeah. Actually, have pushed it back until after Labor Day. I think. Right. So everybody's yeah. still trying to game the, the curve. Who knows? Yeah. And well, we, although, although I did want to touch on the the role of online learning in your sort of philosophy and the strategy there, because it did seem like you were in some ways a little bit ahead of the game in that you were again, being intentional about the use of online and trying to grow that component in your in your delivery and then COVID hit. So I think, you know, unlike organizations and universities that might not have been yeah. prepped, it was difficult for everybody, but at least you had, you had, a, you were a little bit out ahead, right? Yeah, that and also for summer school, we'd always been primarily online. Okay, yep. And so that transition from but we put 99% of our courses up in six days. Wow. Uh-huh. That was incredible. But we, we, you know, again, that's another one of finding uh, the sweet spot of finding the point of equilibrium. Right, right. A lot of our students who are residential will take at least one on kind online class over the course of a year. Yeah. Many will take more. So this hybrid model Mm-hmm. The point is sort of what's the dis what is the distribution between online and the yeah. Secondly, with the summer and the spring last spring to really work on this, and we've put in place a number of training op- op- opportunities for our faculty. Yes, uh, and we've we've really I think improved the. The online delivery, the delivery, you know, when you have five days to figure out how to take a class from yeah. face to online, but if you know you're going to go online and you've got a right. few to work up the class and then we're helping you, we have a very good division of online uh, education. Yeah. Online and we have a new young charismatic, uh, energetic dean there and uh-huh. really making a, a big difference. Yeah, so yeah. We had been lucky that we had started to invest in that anyway. Yes. Yes. But we don't we don't want to go whole hog though. Right. We don't want to be a University of Southern New Hampshire. That's a great model for them, but right. looking to put a hundred thousand students online. Right. You know, we're we're looking to what's going to provide our students uh and mm-hmm. I'm, another point to add to this, just off of a conversation I just got done having with our CIO. What's the right blend to give our students the best chance for success. Now, mm-hmm. what I, the second part of this is, all this assumes people have access to broadband. Yes. Access to quality broadband. Mm-hmm. I've just seen a report from my CIO where we're working with the city and county and we're identifying yeah. where the um, digital deserts are. Yes. That's in the city. Yeah, I'm sure. And where K through 12 students are and then where our students are. And yeah. she's showing me these maps this morning. Mm-hmm. And also where our networks are, where the city's networks are. Yeah. So our strategy is to, is to uh, create what they call mesh networks to, yep. to kind of be able to create free access to broadband by yeah. using wireless to connect yep. our, our, inf- our fiber, our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that I apparently build up some essentially relay posts yeah. the signals across so to cover so right. we're there not only for our students but there's probably on average 25 percent of the guilford county schools k-12 students mm-hmm. who have low or no access yeah. to broadband so yeah yeah so just saying it's going online everybody assumes that you're like you and me you're right sitting, you're sitting at home with your computer yeah. zoom Right. With a big monitor with all yeah. of Also just with a quiet, safe place to study too. You know what I mean? Like as opposed to like depending on what your, your home life is like. Absolutely. You know. A lot of our students have not a lot. Some have toxic home lives. Yeah. Some have hectic home lives. 
someone yeah. at home or asked to to take care of add on more duties like yeah. child care for their younger siblings yeah. and so on that yeah. have when they're at school. Some yeah. of our students have aged out of the foster systems. So they literally don't have a home. Right. Uh, the campus is home for them. And I think for yeah. a non-trivial number of our students, campus is home. Yeah. I'm from a small town. Yeah. I'll know. even speak, you know, from my own experience as an undergrad, you know, I came from a pretty, you know, privileged area on Long Island, but I didn't have an easy childhood. And then having the opportunity to go away to, I got a scholarship to go away to Florida and just reset my life. Right. And it, was, uh, it was transformative. And, and I would imagine that, you know, there's still, there will always need to be some kind of blend to, to kind of meet the, the very, very needs uh, of the student population you're trying to reach, particularly those who are most in need. You know, we've talked yeah. about digital inclusion is one of the themes that we've talked a lot about on the show. And it's, it's just hard. It's hard, harder now where you can't be shoulder to shoulder with someone, yeah. helping them get comfortable with the technology they're out there on their own unless they are physically in in the same space as you so so yeah it's obviously some complexity that you're navigating out there well it it, it is you know they didn't teach me this in chancellor school <laughs> or else i was absent on that day how to manage a pandemic and social unrest simultaneously I yeah think i missed those lectures uh, yeah yeah uh that might have been me and Julio down in the schoolyard with <laughs> what's going on. But so we're trying the best we can to navigate this. Yeah. The problem is that not only is it sort of novel for us, mm -hmm. but it's so fluid. Yeah. I, I was talking to one of my board members uh, earlier today mm -hmm. about some decisions we needed to make. And yeah. just from three weeks ago where we had yeah. the original just started the discussion to now yeah it's all different right it's all what's interesting then doesn't hold now yeah what's interesting about what you seem to have developed there though is that there is that sense of longer term vision so that even if you're dealing with the tumult and the churn in the now where like you know thinking about a strategic plan in 2020 is kind of kind of absurd if you because year one is shot and then where are you going to go year two three five but, but at least you do have sort of the, 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 you know, the North Star, if you will, of, you know, opening up access and, you know, delivering on the mission that you were describing, really being there for these students whose lives can be transformed by their, their educational experience. That in some ways makes it easier to deal with the exigencies of right now where what's aligned with our mission now to help these, these students who are dealing with the unrest or what's aligned to our mission around dealing with these families who are really struggling with COVID and the response and all that. So I know we're coming close to time, but, I, but I'd love to get mm -hmm. some thoughts from you on, you know, what's working and, and how, do you, how do you continue to communicate? I guess what I see from you is you're putting yourself out there, you know, like you're, and you're maybe sharing like lessons in leadership, you know, cause it does seem yeah. like, you have to be able to almost share your vulnerability about some of this stuff too, you know? It's interesting that you say that because I, I, I don't know if you saw the message that I wrote to the campus. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it, as I wrote, it was personal. I mean, mm -hmm. I experienced that in Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, I have a son who's, as I said, 22. Yeah. Who had been after I wrote that in the midweek stopped and followed by the police all the way to his house. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, turned around when he went in the driveway, came back and flashed lights on him and said something to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, so it's very personal to me as it is, I think particularly for many black men. Yeah. Um, but then I told the, Chancellor's Council, I told them how, why I was emotional about this. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I was surprised when several people did say they appreciated me expressing vulnerability yeah. on this. You know, and I, mm -hmm. I was telling them, you know, you need to, you need to understand the black people who work for you mm -hmm. uh, are going through it. They're going through something. Yes. My mother told me a story 
when I was five years old, got in a fight with a kid in Canada. The late, the mother called the, she might've been the original Karen, she called the Royal, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And when wow. the, the Mounties showed up on my doorstep, I wow. got for this five-year-old who was a public threat. God. You know, and uh, in the full the full Mountie uh, costume too. Mom, like, I asked my mom if they came in the red <laughs> jackets and the hats and everything. <laughs> uh, but it, it brought it, it brings up all kinds of stuff for people, and they've got sure. so. I was talking to them about you know how to think about this, and I was also talking to them. A lot of people were asking, "Well, what can we do?" Mm-hmm. You know, particularly white people, what can we do? What can we do? Right. Right. And I wish I could say what I really said, but I think we're on a public broadcast, so I don't <laughs> can. But I said, do blank something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. What... Something. Yeah. Now, just like, do something. So I wanted to answer one of the things we found out during mm-hmm. this pandemic was that our, we have a number of our students are food insecure. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. and we have a, a Spartan Open Pantry, and I mentioned it in my thing. And turns out, fifty percent of the students who use that are black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. my wife and I just decided we went to Costco, loaded up two SUVs, <laughs> and took it over there. Yeah. Look, I'm not rewriting the Civil Rights Act of 1964, mm-hmm. but it's helping somebody. Right. Yeah. There's people yeah. be able to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, food. I told this to you. I said food. <laughs> yeah. Alan Iverson when he said practice, you know. Oh my God. I said food. We're talking about food here. Oh my God. Well, you you had me with with Iverson. I mean, that's a whole nother. Well, I mean, that, that was yeah. I good practice. You're asking yeah. me to practice. I'm yeah. But it was that tone. We're talking about something fun. Food. Yeah. Food. Well, it's like Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. You know, like if you don't, you don't feel safe, you don't have food, you don't have clothes on your back, the, all the loftier aspirations of higher education don't mean anything. Don't mean anything. And yeah. so the point is, do something. Mm-hmm. Whatever your thing is. Yeah. Whatever you're, whatever you're good at, whatever you feel. Yeah. You have skill at that you can lend, or. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it mentoring and creating networks? Is it is it being an anti-racist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's been a, a real distinction we've learned in this. Yes. There's yes. a difference between being a racist and being an anti-racist. Yeah. People say, well, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of my friends to that. But yeah. I'm an anti-racist. Yeah, exactly. Are yeah. you preventing conversations from happening? Mm-hmm. You hear it among people. Are yeah. you calling people when they're invoking race, uh, when you're talking about promotions for folks? Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah, because I keep coming back, yeah, I keep coming back to like, are you, are you, can you get comfortable being uncomfortable talking about race, you know, because you're not going to get it right, like you're going to feel, especially as a white, white fragility is another book that I just started, but like trying to understand where, you know, as a white person, you will feel more like your defense mechanisms are triggered in in your own ways and like just try to work through that and realize that you we all come with baggage based on our lived experiences, but like being able to, to, to own that you're uncomfortable about this stuff, but you still are not avoiding it. You're, you know, like it, the time, hopefully the time for avoidance stays away. Like I'm concerned that we're not going to have the appetite well, we're not. to stay on this. Yeah. We're, <laughs> yeah. Not. we're not, but you got to kind of lurch it forward. You know, you yeah. said a phrase that I've been using actually in response to COVID with my mm. set. Mm. You all are going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Because yeah. the school year is not going to go, you know, universities yeah. are interesting, right? They are very, I don't know if regimented is the right word, but yeah. scrutinized. Is yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, move, we talked about moving, there's a move in. Yeah, yeah. Big hoop, hoop law around the beginning of the school year. And yeah, yeah. All sorts of events, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, yeah. And classes start, then the break. And, and yeah. so people are, my biggest thing when I got here, I, I'd ask, why are we doing that? And they say, oh, we're doing it that way because we always did it that way. Yeah, yeah. We're not, you know, something that's not going to be a good enough answer. Yeah, yeah. Now with COVID, it's really not because we don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't predict anybody. Can yeah. Predict anything. 
Yeah. 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 You're going to have to be uncomfortable. I'm going to have to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with being uncomfortable. Yeah. And and when you start to talk about race, Mm -hmm. white people are going to have to experience discomfort if they want progress. Right. I think what white people see now is black people experience discomfort every day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an everyday lived life. I can, to this day, I mm-hmm. can tell you uh, something that has happened to me almost every day. Yeah, Something yeah. We're coming up close to time. I always like to ask my guests what trends are capturing their imagination outside of what we just talked about. And it may also be reinforcing what we just talked about, if that's really all that's kind of occupying your mind. But uh, longer term, looking ahead into the 2030s, uh, twenty through the 2020s, yeah. What 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 kind of trends do you see out there that are that are that are capturing your imagination? Well, that's that's an interesting question because I've been trying to tell the university community, particularly donors, board members, and senior staff, that we've got to the goal isn't to get back to the pre-COVID world. Right. We've got to somehow leapfrog. Mm. So, and mm-hmm. for us as an institution, in particular, to get ahead, what can we do? So we are working on on as you say digital inclusion I, you know mm-hmm. you know used to think believe that we conquered the digital divide i remember right. the conversation happening mm-hmm. 15 20 years ago mm-hmm. you haven't heard much about it since but now right right we start to see the upside of things like zoom and other yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh, telework uh, platforms it's clear that that's going to be incorporated not as much as people think yeah. Well, I think companies are going to find that, hey, I don't need them bringing my sales force from all over yeah. the country. It costs too much. Or mm-hmm. boards. I'm on several boards where we've had virtual meetings. And I think, you know, you don't get the having a cocktail at the bar kind of exactly. thing. Yeah. Instead of having four meetings or three meetings a year, you maybe have one and have the others. Um, yeah, remote. Yeah. Remote. Um, mm-hmm. so so this whole digital access broadband inclusion mm-hmm. is, is one trend. I think that one of the most interesting things, and I've always thought about it, and I think the Tulsa incident brought it about, mm-hmm. is around uh, black access to capital. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. hearing some discussions about various folks trying to rebuild Black Wall Street. There's yeah. one. There was one in Durham, North Carolina. Mm. Uh, North Carolina Life, which I think is the biggest black insurance company okay. in the country for yeah. from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be, uh, I think that's going to be a trend. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see how long this interest in race as a intellectual project. Yes. Because, you know... I cracked up when I, I think it's my Netflix, when it popped up, you know, the home page pops up and the top row was black films. <laughs> I, just, I just thought it was the funniest thing, thing I'd ever seen, you know, and, and so I guess if you want to learn, if you want yeah. to learn on blacks and film, you could, so yeah. I'm curious about how that trend will, will, yeah. will play out. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in how, in, in how this all plays out politically, just mm-hmm. the demonstrations and the like. Yes. The biggest, I think, takeaway, uh, particularly from COVID, but also from uh, the protests, is around the concepts of structure, systemic, and institutional. I mm-hmm. think for, for progressive racial advocates, the most difficult task has been trying to get people to understand what that means. Yeah. Word, I mean, bring me some yeah. racism. I can't touch it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Show me George Floyd. I can touch it. I can see it. Yes. But, but so I think COVID, for example, has exposed the systemic biases in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Now, yep. it's, it's a pattern is a pattern. Yeah. <laughs> you do a pattern. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. And, uh, it's interesting that Native Americans and Blacks have the highest death, proportional death rates. Right, right. And Hispanics yeah. aren't that far behind. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you're a polit- and a, you're a political scientist. So like, we need more people with that. Like, what level? What base level of understanding of the influence of society and these institutions on how we understand ourselves and our lives? Not everybody even has that baseline working knowledge. You know, like we're talking about access to food, right? Access to healthcare. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying. Yeah. I have access to being a hedge fund manager. Right, right. Yeah. Just base level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Food and, and yeah. health. Yeah, yeah. Some deep stuff. I mean, that's, so we're, we're looking, just to end, we're, we're talking, we started this racial equity initiative. Mm-hmm. And so the question became, do you attack it the way a university would? You set up a task force and you set up these committees and you do yeah. that which is our natural response. Sure. Or do you say, we're gonna solve three problems. So if it's food insecurity or whatever, yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know what the problems are. I see. We're mm-hmm. gonna solve it through the organization. Mm-hmm. Right, microaggression, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna have metrics, we're gonna have outcomes, and everybody's mm-hmm. gonna have to do it. And mm-hmm. um, so we're thinking about how we approach approaches yeah uh, and we'll see how accountable people are going to be i'm very mm-hmm. curious to see whether these protests end up in anything in terms of political action yeah agreed uh i it's going to be a turnout election mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm thrilled i i can't begin you know i was a long time commentator on one of the tv stations in la when i was dean ah, i'd mm. speak my mind on politics then I yeah can't, now you're the chancellor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, well, we've been positing some interesting hypotheses about what will happen about mid-October. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's going to be the telling point on everything, I think. So. Yeah, well, we had an amazing conversation here. I'd love to have you back on. It sounds like there's plenty, plenty more for us to talk about. This is Dr. Franklin D. Gilliam, Jr., the chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate having you on, on, the, on the show. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, and to our listeners, we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Mm-hmm.